The world ultimately demands it, and when they don't have enough oil and gas and prices go high, you hear about it. You've got to do things in a responsible way, whether it be environmentally or low carbon. Welcome to The Next Imperative, a podcast hosted by AM Energy Leaders, tackling key issues and trends in the industry. Welcome back to The Next Imperative. I'm Jeff Angulo, your host and moderator. On this episode, we're going to kick off our Integrated Oil Company series with a conversation about the macro environment in the oil and gas industry. Joining me for this conversation is Al Conright, Managing Director and one of the leaders of the energy team here at Alvarez and Marsal, and Jay Johnson, who's recently joined us as a senior advisor after a 40 plus year career at Chevron, culminating as in head of upstream. Al, Jay, welcome to the next imperative. Thanks. Thank you for joining us. Well, let's jump into the conversation. Let's start talking about the energy industry and kind of supply-demand macro environment. Maybe talk about oil first, and then we can transition and talk about natural gas, because the factors are very different. Jay, do you want to start us off? Sure. I think, you know, it's been a phenomenal couple of years, because as you've watched the U.S. industry remake itself and drive for ever-increasing efficiency, we've seen the U.S. retake the lead spot as a producer of oil. And, and certainly today, that seems to be still holding true. And I think there's been so much innovation that have lowered the cost structure of the United States, and particularly the unconventional plays, but also in some of the deep water plays, uh, that the U.S. has been able to maintain a, an important role, fulfilling some of the uh, gap that might otherwise have opened up uh, between the supply and demand, just because of the amount of uh, decline that you're going to see out of existing reservoirs over time. Now, what do you think? Well. It's, uh, I've been looking for the demise of the supply in oil for years. People have said, oh, we got a cliff. Oil's going to drop off and it's going to be driven not by demand, but purely by supply. And one of the things Jay said that's so critical is technology and innovation just reinvents the oil industry continually. Uh -huh. And you look at what's happened with the shale, but before that deep water, 3D seismic, you go back in time and it, and there's always a new, a new breakthrough technology-wise because we've got really creative people trying to solve really complex, difficult problems. So um, supply is, uh, can meet demand and can likely meet demand for quite some time going forward. It's well, I was just going to say it's interesting because, you know, when they talk about how much is the supply, you know, how much is in the, the world supply, and it really depends on at what price. And as prices rise, as things get tight, then it unlocks even more technology, more advanced methods of recovery. Uh, and as prices go down, then it allows the more efficient fields to just continue to operate. And so it really does, you know, you see that dynamic all the time between the price and the availability of supply. What about on the natural gas side, Al? You want to start this one? Yeah, I, um, if the U.S. policymakers would get out of their own way, the U.S. could supply so much natural gas to the rest of the world through LNG and, and exporting it. And if you really were serious about uh, decarbonizing, you could have replaced a lot of the coal that's being burnt, not just in the U.S., but around the world, by unleashing natural gas. It is, it is a commodity we've got. We're, we're so fortunate in the U.S. to have lots of oil and not lots of natural gas. And again, it didn't just happen. It came through technology and innovation. But uh, natural gas is an abundant supply. It will be a fuel. People call it a bridge fuel. I, I don't see it that way. It's, it's, it, it, it's a fuel that we need. 
um, for all sources of, of to meet demand. And so it's uh, natural gas. I, I just don't see a, the only issue with natural gas is at what price. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the U.S., we've got so much of it that we can we can drive prices down fairly quickly until there's some export capacity to, to really take advantage of some of the global global demand hubs. Where that really, especially with the Russian Ukraine, uh, that gas needs gas needs to find its way to where the demand is, and that demands in Asia, that demands in India, that demands in currently in Europe. Uh, so it's uh, it's a great time. It, I think natural gas is going to be a wonderful industry in the years ahead assuming we can get out of our own way. I think one of the things that you mentioned that, that I look at is that natural gas is a perfect complement to the renewables, the growth in renewables today. And because of the intermittency in some of the renewables, natural gas is an ideal fuel and an energy delivery system to be able to ramp up quickly when it's needed, evenings when the wind's not uh, blowing or too hard mm-hmm. either way. And so gas plays a really critical role in stabilizing a lot of the, the world's energy supply, particularly with renewables, taking a bigger and bigger percentage. Until um, grid-scale storage uh, really becomes economic on a wide scale, I think natural gas is going to play a really critical role in helping to stabilize uh, energy supplies because you know you need energy that is going to be there. It's got to be reliable, has to be secure, and it has to be affordable. And you need all those things, and I think gas plays an important role in those areas. And even in this country, we get reminded of that every few years, whether it be wildfires in California, where all of a sudden we can't meet demand because natural gas is not an abundant supply like it used to be, or in Texas, where you have a deep freeze, yep. and all yeah. of a sudden, a lot of your infrastructure gets frozen up. So I think it's, it's a lesson that we continually have to get, have to relearn, unfortunately, but uh, wonderful fuel, wonderful hydrocarbon for, for the world. and and I suspect it's going to be here for a really long time. Great. In the current environment, how do you see the roles of the independent operator and the IOCs evolving? And Jay, why don't you take the IOCs first, and then Al, you can take the independents and share comments. I think the integrated oil companies or the international oil companies, depending on how you define the I, Mm -hmm. um, one of the things we've had to learn and we bring to the table is a lot of discipline. And so we can do things repetitively and and really drive efficiency. Um, I think there's also a lot of resource capability to, and a lot of capability around technology to help drive some of the advancements in technology. But certainly the IOCs don't have a corner on that market. And from my perspective, there's a lot to learn from many of the independents that are out there that are figuring out innovative ways to continue to develop fields and learning from each other is absolutely critical. So I see a nice um, synergy between them actually as, as uh, I think the discipline of, of being able to replicate and, and do things in a very efficient manner is combined with the rapid innovation that we've seen from many of the, IOS, uh, the independent oil companies. Yeah, it, uh, the IOCs have got a lot of advantages including big balance sheets. And I think you underestimate the importance of big balance sheets until you really need a big balance sheet. <laughs> and every few years, you find out we need a big balance sheet, commodity prices collapsed. Or we realize these projects that we're into require a lot of capital and a lot of staying power. And so I actually think things like the, uh, the clean energy 
is going to be is going to be a big company game at the end of the day. It's going to require a lot of capital, and right now we have startups trying to incubate it, and that may be where a lot of the innovation comes from. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I think you'll see the the IOCs become the major players in that space as well. Yeah, to implement it. To implement it, but it's just it's going to be capital intensive, and uh, I think one of the things IOCs do really well is, is manage big projects and uh, implement real. Uh, complex, complex, uh, technically challenging initiatives around the world. Yeah, thank you. What are the challenges that you think IOCs are facing in today's environment? I, I, I'll take it first. Sure. I think, I, I don't want to pick on BP or Shell, but um, the, the European investor base thinks about the world a little differently than the U.S. investor base. Which, which can challenge management's wisdom around where to invest capital and, uh, and ultimately what kind of returns you can expect. Uh, so I think one of the big challenges is how do you balance the need for additional sources of, uh, of energy, whether it be wind, solar, hydrogen, whatever the case is, uh, nuclear at some point, with, uh, with the current uh, returns you're going to get from the oil and gas sector. So I think that's one of the big challenges right now. Yeah, I think understanding what your, your shareholders are truly looking for. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to say you want something, and then is that really, in essence, what they want? And I think in most cases, um, companies are faced with the dilemma that it's not just one thing that shareholders want. They want a portfolio of, of performance. And what I mean by that is, you need to be focused and attentive to the environmental demands and, and the climate change issues that are out there and producing ever cleaner energy. But at the same time, shareholders want returns, but you also want to be sustainable and generate the free cash flow necessary to meet the expectations around dividends, balance sheet health, and the ongoing investment programs for new infrastructure, new fields. Uh, so it's really a balance between resource replenishment, generating the returns, performance towards uh, developing cleaner sources of, of energy production, and then also um, the cash flow that, that's needed. So I think those are some of the, the challenges. The headwinds are, it's, most companies are facing a pretty tough regulatory environment. So the ability to build new infrastructure, pipelines, some of the things that can improve the efficiency are often very difficult to get approved and, and implemented in many parts of the world. I mean, the, the good news is, if you'd asked me this question 10 years ago, I'd have said people are going to be a real challenging industry. And yet now we're attracting new talent coming out of colleges. And partly because we're not old plumbers, we're old mechanics on cars. We're using digital and innovation and, uh, and AI and things like that that are, that are compelling for people that want to be in our industry. So we've got a whole new generation, I think, about that in our industry that we weren't counting on. Uh, recently as five years ago, maybe. So exciting times. That's great. Al, how would you advise IOCs in face the challenges that we're talking about today? What? Don't forget the fundamentals. <laughs> to me, the fundamentals and the fundamentals are we, we're, in, we're running a business for the long term, number one. We've got to generate acceptable returns. In fact, I would argue industry-leading returns should mm -hmm. be your target. You've got to do things in a responsible way whether that be environmentally or low carbon. 
And uh, you've got to make sure you have a balance sheet and a, and a shareholder program that is uh, uh, expected by the shareholders. And I, if we do those four things well, and we don't get detracted by, by others, other, other noise, uh, it, my advice is just stay the course. That doesn't mean you're not going to decarbonize. It doesn't mean you're not going to quit flaring. There's basic things that, that we as an industry know we need to do. And hopefully we're doing that today on a global scale. I think part of it, too, is to have the discipline. This stuff doesn't happen overnight. So it's, it's having the discipline to be clear on the expectations, whether it's safety, environment, uh, operational performance, operational efficiency, all those. And then just being able to relentlessly pursue those objectives uh, consistently over time is, uh, is a major challenge. Just because these organizations are so big, they work in complex environments around the world, different cultures, uh, but keeping everybody focused and moving in a constant direction, I think, is a really important aspect. It can be a great strength, but it also takes a lot of focus and discipline. To, to keep it on the course. And yeah. yeah. Good stuff. We talked a little bit about energy transition and the pressures that that's creating. How have you seen the evolution of energy transition through the IOC? And I say transition, in my mind, it's energy additions, right? I mean, it, I can't think of a single source of energy that's actually gone away. But as we add the new renewables, how has how that transition impacted the IOCs? How are they thinking about it? Well, I think it's, it's hard to say the IOCs as one homogeneous group because obviously different companies are taking different approaches to it. But I think, um, I think you're right. The, the energy transition really isn't a transition. It's just adding additional forms of energy supply. And I think the world's going to need that. We're going to need every form of energy as the population continues to grow. And people that have not had access to energy are going to continue to not just demand it, but deserve access to that energy. So the energy picture needs to grow in concert with some of the goals we talked about earlier. But I think the the challenge for each company is to decide where do they have expertise? Where do they have something to add? Where do they have something that sets them apart and pursue those particular aspects? Uh, because you can't do everything. You can't be good at everything. And I think different companies have to select their areas of expertise, their areas of strength and competency and experience, and then really work to promote and develop those areas in particular. Yeah, I think the whole energy landscape is evolving every year. But I think we've lost, I think a billion people lost sight of the fact that 7 billion people want reasonably priced, secure, reliable energy. And as we embarked, and I say we, we as a society embarked on the journey to, to we're still talking about phasing out oil and gas. Oil and gas should disappear. Good luck. Good luck telling that to the 8 billion people that want to live like the other billion live. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think, I think, I think, you know, I hate to talk bureaucrats, but I think, I think we've lost sight of, of what's, what's achievable. We're, we're burning more wood chips now than we've ever burnt in the world. How, how can that be that we're burning more wood chips? It's a source, it's a source of, it's a source of fuel yeah. and it's a reliable source of fuel. So the, the world's still burning wood chips and we'll still be burning coal. We'll still be burning but we'll also have wind, we'll also have solar, we'll also have natural gas, we'll also have oil. And uh, so I, I just think the, the narrative almost took over common sense. And uh, now we're swinging back to something that's a little more common sense, I think. 
maybe just to build on that, it's not so much maybe about absolutes. There won't be any more oil and gas, or there won't be any more nuclear, or there won't be any more of one thing or another. But it's really understanding the role that each form of energy needs to play and how as a portfolio the energy mix can meet the needs that people have while still working towards the goals. You know, eliminating fugitive methane emissions, improving the efficiency of not only consumption of energy but production of energy. Those move us in the right direction, but they're not absolutes. It's, it's going to be a constant uh, effort to improve and then understanding the relative role like we talked about at the beginning with the natural gas and oil and what role they play in the energy mix. Yeah, to your point earlier, gas is a great substitute for, for renewable electricity. Oil's not. And equally, gas can be a difficult substitute for oil for transportation. Natural gas can be a great source of hydrogen as hydrogen becomes a fuel of the future uh, and becomes a part of the energy mix. Uh, as long as you have carbon capture and storage, then the carbon that's emitted from stripping natural gas uh, can be a great source of carbon or of hydrogen, hydrogen. Uh, while capturing the carbon. So there's ways that these systems can work together uh, to achieve the ultimate goals. Great. How have you seen the different IOCs try and balance the need to generate free cash flow and at the same time invest for the future? Is it different regionally, you know, the European IOCs versus US, Asia? What are you seeing? From my perspective, there were some corrections when we went through the last big downturn in 2020 kind of time frame. And you saw many of the Europeans that had very high dividend loads and were supporting a lot of pension funds and things like that were forced to pull back on their dividends and, and bring their uh, dividend payouts and their capital investments into better balance, uh, particularly to preserve balance sheets and, and weather the storm. And so I think from time to time, you know, that that may continue to happen, but it's really finding that balance, I think, between resource replenishment, the generation of free cash flow and the investment uh, for the returns that the shareholders are looking for is kind of the balance each company has to play based on their particular mix of shareholders and, and the expectations that they have. And I'll approach from an independent perspective too, Jeff. It wasn't that long ago where we invested far more than 100% of our cash flow mm -hmm. for years and years and years. And guess what? We destroyed value in the shale plays in the U.S. as an example. And it was only after the last correction did we get really serious about the fact that we needed to generate returns and have a distribution model and have a balance sheet that was, that was uh, sustainable. So a lot of the things that the IOCs have always had the independents now have looked at it and said, you know, we need to, our business is no different than a Chevron or a Shell or an Exxon. Mm -hmm. We need to be sustainable. We need to do things the right way. We need to have dividends. We need to have share buybacks. And oh, guess what? We need to have a good debt structure that, that works for us. Yep. So I think I think what you've seen is, is thankfully, we've seen the, the independents move to a much more sustainable business model. That doesn't mean they're all going to be around because we've seen a lot of consolidation. I suspect we'll still see a lot of consolidation, but at least the consolidation is being done for the right reasons. Uh, so I'm, I, I, I think the independents have really followed the, the, the lead of the IOCs. And the IOCs have been in that position for a very long time, especially the U.S. ones. What would you recommend to IOCs in terms of investment strategies, given the regulatory environments that are getting more and more onerous? and other factors that we've talked about today impacting the industry. How would you advise them to be thinking for the next five years? 
That's an easy one. <laughs> uh, I think the I think we're we're we've come through an environment where we reduced size of portfolios and mm -hmm. focused on coring up around the world. And you think about West Texas or the, the old Permian Basin, you think about Powder River Basin, you think about you know spots in Africa and other places, the Med. So there's there's been a coring up of, of where we've got some where we have some strength as an industry or as a company. And the question is, what follows that? How long can that last? And with technology, I think it can last. We we keep reinventing. I mean, the Permian Basin was dead when I came to Texas 30 years ago. It was never going to get reinvented. 30 years later, we're at maximum production. Yeah. So, uh, I'm I'm not a naysayer that. The, the current assets we have won't be producing in the next 30 years. I think they will be, but the real question around investment is how should how far should we push beyond our core set of assets, and and that's why you're seeing a little bit of expiration come back into the portfolio, uh, and um, but that's going to largely be focused on natural gas, not oil. Um, but I do think you'll see expiration make a big bit of a comeback uh, in the world we're living in today. Yeah, I agree. I think. Expiration plays a role, particularly when commodity prices are high, because it can be very expensive to buy resources and reserves from others. But when you're in a low commodity price environment, then you tend to see the mergers and acquisitions, I think, come to the fore, because it's, it's more efficient, more economic to just bring those additional resources in and then run them and produce them efficiently. When you do a merger, you don't really add to the total resource base like you do with operation. But I think from a strategy standpoint, it's, it's recognizing there are competing interests. You know, continuing to produce oil and gas, we've talked about, is going to be important. And I think uh, the world ultimately demands it. And when they don't have enough oil and gas and prices go high, you hear about it. Uh, that energy is fundamentally critical. But at the same time, it's not about just growing for growth's sake. I think if you think about it in terms of growing value, uh, growing value for shareholders, uh, then it makes a lot more sense. And so to your point, it's about thinking about how does your company fit in the energy picture? What things, again, can you, uh, can you excel at and be better than others in the industry to generate those superior returns? Our prices, you take the price generally for whatever commodity you're producing. So that means you have to be efficient in how you produce and more efficient than the next guy, both in finding new resource and in producing what you have. And that's ultimately where the technology comes to bear and just the, the management and leadership practices within a company that allow them to work with a minimum of bureaucracy and, and maximum effect. When we tried to get too aggressive at getting every last bit of capital efficiency and things, I think it led us to become too complex, go after projects that were too difficult to execute, and we ultimately didn't deliver on even basic expectations keeping things simple, keeping things focused, understanding what you're trying to achieve, and then being very thoughtful about what areas you're going to play in, in it for a given company uh, in the energy mix, I think, is, is how you start putting that strategy together and have it be sustainable and, and viable. I've had a lot of clients over 30 years, Jeff, and I think every one of them were top quartile. <laughs> if you ask them how they were doing relative to their peers, they were top quartile. I guarantee you, at least there's more discipline now of looking at benchmark data and truly understand whether you're top quartile or not. 
And it's one of the things that Alvarez helps our clients through is, is putting a mirror up. You know, you may think you're top quartile. Let us show you where you actually fit. And it's not to make them feel bad. It's to say, what's the possibility? Right. I mean, if, if, you, if you believe the data, then how far could you bring your company forward and accelerate cash flow? Yeah. And uh, it's a powerful it's a powerful way of looking thinking about the business and and uh, as I said uh, the majors have been doing that for some time but the independents are really jumping on it now. I think your last point is so important. It's not about looking at benchmark data to feel bad. I actually used to tell business units, if you're fourth quartile, you should feel thrilled about that because you're doing this well now, and we've just identified an area where you potentially could do a lot better. Others have proven it's possible. So let's look at what is possible. If we moved up higher on performance in this area, what could it do for us? And so, you know, getting out of that mindset that the quartiles are a negative thing, if you're not in the top quartile, to these represent areas of opportunity and really help focus your attention and your efforts into what's possible. It's a complete game changer in terms of how you use that information and data. Absolutely. You both mentioned exploration. And in my mind, the last 10, 15 years, exploration, at least in the U.S., has kind of been outsourced to the shales. And it was less about going and finding new things and more about small companies building up positions and then selling it off. How has exploration changed over the last 15 years? Is it as successful as it used to be? Is there opportunity for improvements there? I think it's been in pockets successful. We've seen real success in the Gulf of Mexico. We've seen a lot of success in Australia. We, we saw success 15, 20 years ago in West Africa. So it's been, it's been pockets of, of uh, success, but I think we went through a period where we just over-invested. The, the asset base could not sustain the amount of money we were putting on it. Mm -hmm. So I think we, we naturally went through a period of reducing our capital exposure to expiration. And I think, that, again, I think that was a healthy thing but I think in the last couple of years, we're now looking at it saying, well, spending that little bit of our cash flow and expiration likely isn't the right answer. So it's causing the, all the great geoscientists we have in our industry to, to rethink, you know, what does success look like and where, where can we be successful? And as I said, it may be more natural gas than oil going forward, but I do think uh, expiration is, is, is going to play a role in replacing our hydrocarbons. I think so too. I think expiration, you're, you're right in how you characterize it. It's easy to be extremely inefficient in exploration and put too much capital into it. Um, there's a tendency to want to chase the biggest new finds and fields and they're, they're hard to come by. There hasn't been many new plays outside of the unconventional. I'm talking about mainly conventional right. now around the world in the last 10 or 15 years. You can count them on one hand kind of thing. But that doesn't mean there's not a lot of value in exploration. Uh, even places like the Deepwater Gulf of Mexico that we've been at for a long, long time, focusing the exploration so that that exploration can find e smaller accumulations and tie those into existing infrastructure, for example, can be really value-adding as opposed to a brand new greenfield somewhere that, that starts up. So I think the thinking about exploration has changed a lot and, and finding new resource that can be tied into existing infrastructure uh, is really an opportunity that's, that's often overlooked. It's not quite as glamorous as finding that new huge oil field, but in terms of adding value can be one of the best things uh, companies can do. I do think Iana's brought back the dream though. Yeah. yeah. So I think, I think we could all think Exxon <laughs> and Hess 
for bringing back the dream. That, uh, you know, it's not as if that hasn't been there for thousands of years. And uh, we had some smart people figure it out and, and drill some great wells and bring them online quickly. So the whole development scheme has changed a lot to, from expiration to 10 or 15 years of development to expiration to three years of cash flow. I mean, it's a totally different model. Yeah. So I think, I think as long as that's the model going forward, and I don't see any way it's not going to be, that, again, that brings more emphasis back to expiration and doing things smart. How are you seeing the IOCs address the challenges of human capital? Acquiring people, retain, retaining people. Uh, you made a point earlier, Al, that you're seeing a new class coming in from universities that are excited about some of the, the complex technology we're deploying. What are we seeing? Because for years, people have been talking about brain drain. And, and what's what do you guys see? Well, I think, like every industry, uh, we, productivity keeps moving up. So I'd be lying if I said we didn't have still a bell curve on our age population. We, we still have we still have a lot of people that, that in the next five to seven years are gonna retire from our industry. But at the same time, we're applying technology and, and innovation to the way we do things every day. And if, if some of the things that the majors or the IOCs are doing around uh, AI, it blows me away to even think about where we've come from in the last five years. So I think Yes, will we will we have fewer people in industry? Likely, but the ones that are going to be in it are going to be really be focused on technology, and I think that's an exciting industry. We're an exciting industry to attract. I think that's what we're starting to see now: data scientists, data engineers, and things like that enter our space. And we need them. We need yeah. them badly. It was interesting because we talk a lot about the people coming in today want different things, and and um, what are they looking for in a company and. I actually think the people coming into work today and joining our companies are very similar to the ones, the same expectations we had. You want to feel like you work for a company that's a beneficial contributor to the world around you and that they do noble things. Providing energy is certainly in that, in that range. They want to know that w the work that they do is going to make a difference and they can actually make a contribution and feel good about the contribution they make. And they want to learn and, and develop new skills and new expertise. And I think if, if we think about it in those terms, there is so much opportunity right along the lines you just talked about, whether it's technology and working around the world and the different cultures that we work in, the opportunity to develop people. It's something that I think the more senior people in the company can't lose sight on because they create the environment that makes it conducive for the next generation to be successful and to thrive. And that's something that's important to keep in front of us. So I think there's people out there, plenty of people out there, uh, but it's all about making sure that, that we create an environment where they can be successful. And I think they want many of the same things that, that we wanted when we started our careers. You're right, those, that, that excitement that you just talked about, the key points, that was there 40-something years ago when I started the industry. Mm -hmm. When you started the industry, that's yeah. why we came into this industry in the first place. So. Yeah, good that we've maintained it. And yeah. I, Jay just said something really critical, though, or alluded to it, and that is we got to get the best out of our people. And to go to, to micromanage, to make decisions for them, to, uh, to not give them the, the coaching and the latitude to be successful is just a, is just a shame. Yeah. And we're doing the, not only employees a disservice, we're doing management a disservice and the company.
And the shareholders. So I think so and ultimately the shareholders. So I think I think what Jay to hit on is 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 going to be a huge focus going forward. How do we get the optimum performance out of our employee base? And uh, none of us have the answer to that. But I think in aggregate, we can come up with a much better solution, much better answer. Yeah. Alan Jay, thank you very much for your valuable insights and your time. To our audience, thank you for watching. We hope you found this discussion as valuable as we did. We have an exciting series coming up on integrated oil companies. Stay tuned for episodes on production management, on transformation, and on capital efficiency and M&A. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe to The Next Imperative so you never miss a new episode. Also, visit our website at alvarezandmarsal.com to learn more and to connect with us.